Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guess from the title alone, which is... Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city. It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. So I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully, as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about the beginnings of the reign of King James the Sixth. Now, James, he was being raised to be an exemplary Protestant leader, which is what Arlene Foster has printed on her business cards. You know, it just says, Arlene Foster, exemplary Protestant leader. <laughs> James, he was given uh, an intensive education as a child. He was uh, a child prodigy, probably the most intelligent world leader until Donald Trump. And like Donald Trump, he too was in love with a family member, not his daughter, but a Stuart cousin, Esme Stuart. Now, Esme Stuart was a dashing Frenchman in his 30s. The whole thing was wildly inappropriate. Do you know what I mean, like a 13-year-old boy king and a middle-aged Frenchman, but nobody said anything. The 1570s being very similar to the 1970s in that respect. James, he was captured by extreme Protestants in the Ruthven Raid of 1582, where he was stuck at Ruthven Castle with extremely religious people like a kid on a scripture union holiday. He escaped, and he would take his revenge on the Scottish Presbyterians who locked him up by liquidating them and making them start at the very lowest levels of Scottish professional football. I'll teach them. In 1589, he travelled to Norway to marry the beautiful Danish prince and the couple they honeymooned in Denmark for six months, travelling about in the court of James's new brother-in-law, Chris and the Fours, where they drank and debated and feasted. It must be nice just dossing about doing whatever the fuck you want for six months. I mean, to be fair, like, in this country, we have a monarch who's been doing it for 94 years now, but still... Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, alright? I'm not going to lie to you, this is mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? All of the episodes, they go in chronological order. Each one gives a bit of background into the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so you can like jump in at William Wallace or Robert the Bruce if you want to do that. Basically, if you're listening for the first time go through the back catalogue that's what I suggest right anyway folks so without further ado here is your podcast all about the beginnings of the reign of King James VI I do hope you enjoy it have fun out there and I shall see you all on the other side Enjoy! James was born in a tiny wee room in Edinburgh Castle on the 19th of June 1566. His mother, who was of course Mary Queen of Scots, is said to have had the head of St Margaret dug up and placed in her birthing room. I don't know if she thought it was like an early version of Alexa. Do you know what I mean? She was asking Margaret how dilated she was. All I know is it would make one hell of a good luck charm on Countdown that, wouldn't it? Now Mary, she adopted for the security of Edinburgh Castle as Holyrood was deemed too easy to infiltrate. Unless, of course, you're in the Scottish Labour Party, in which case Holyrood's basically fucking impossible to get into. Edinburgh Castle was deemed more secure than Holyrood Palace because no one in the enemy ranks could afford the entrance fee to get in the bloody thing. 
Now, the birth came just months after the murder of David or of Mary's Italian secretary, David Rizzio. This is why Edinburgh Castle was chosen over Holyrood Palace, because the rebel lords, they'd been able to take control of the palace and break into the Queen's bedchamber with remarkable ease. And when James was born, Mary, she made a very public, very deliberate proclamation of her son's legitimacy. And unlike Prince Harry, everyone seems to have actually believed her. And after the very public breakdown of her relationship with Lord Henry Darnley, Mary, she was understandably anxious to make it clear in public that this child was legitimate. She had her husband Darnley summoned to her bedside immediately after the birth and she said to him, My Lord, God has given you and me a son, begotten by none but you. Here I protest to God, and as I shall answer to him at the great day of judgment, that this is your son and no other man's son. And I am desirous that all here, both ladies and others, bear witness, for he is so much your own son that I fear it will be worse for him hereafter. This is the son who I hope shall first unite the two kingdoms of Scotland and England. This is quite something that, isn't it? Like, insisting the kid is definitely his, seeing the kid will be worse for it, and hoping that this kid would unite Scotland and England. I mean, this is probably word for word what Carrie Simmons said to Boris after his kid was born. Holding him up like a wee Tory Simba. Oi, Boris the Lion, this is your kid. Boris, Boris the Lion, fucking bastard, more like. The birth of a male heir, it pushed Darnley and the current heir presumptive, James Hamilton, the Duke of Shatlerow, further back in the succession. And now there was a male heir to the throne, Mary, she didn't need Darnley's support. This... Birth had come just months after Darnley had betrayed and conspired with the Protestant nobles to have David Rizzio murdered at Holyrood Palace. Mary hadn't forgotten this, and now that the child was born, she was able to lift any remaining pretense that she actually needed her husband's support. There were huge celebrations across the kingdom at the news of the birth of a male heir. Everyone was really excited to get mail, which I can relate to. Do you know what I mean? Like, getting mail is the highlight of my day during lockdown as well. James, he was baptised in an incredibly lavish ceremony at Stirling Castle on the 17th of December 1566. And he was made king when he was only 13 months old after Mary's forced abdication at Loch Leven in 1567. He was coronated in an austere Protestant ceremony in the parish church of the Holy Rood in Stirling on the 29th of July 1567. The Holyrood Church was chosen since James had had a Catholic baptism at Stirling Castle. And the church is located just a, a few hundred yards from the castle. You can visit it to this day. And with yet another infant on the throne, there was the familiar power wrangling between Scotland's nobles who were vying for control of the kingdom through possession of the king. James was kept as an effective prisoner at Stirling Castle for most of his childhood, while the Marian civil war between the King's men and the Queen's men raged throughout the kingdom. And throughout James's minority at Stirling, he was being raised by the Erskine family. John Erskine, Earl of Mar, he was the keeper of Stirling Castle, and he was given responsibility of James's guardianship, while Scotland was ruled by a series of regents. The first regent was James's uncle, James Stuart, the Earl of Murray, until his assassination in Linlithgow in January 15. 
1570. Then his grandfather, Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, he was given the regency until his death in a raid on Stirling Castle by the Queen's men in September 1571. Lennox was followed by the man who was responsible for James's upbringing at Stirling Castle, John Erskine, the Earl of Mar. And finally, when Mar died of natural causes in October 1572, the regency was held by James Douglas, the Earl of Morton. And it can't have been easy for wee James, you know what I mean? Like being brought up in a broken family in the midst of a civil war. I mean, not that pretty Patel would have given a fuck, mind you. All these men who acted as regents, they were adversaries of Queen Mary and they hated her even more vehemently than Piers Morgan hates Meghan Markle. Murray had launched a rebellion against his half-sister and presented falsified evidence at the conference, a series of inquiries held in England in which Mary had to face a charge of conspiring to murder her second husband, Lord Henry Darnley. Lennox was alleged to be a part of a plot to make Darnley regent by ousting Mary and replacing her with her infant son James, and after Darnley's death, he was one of Mary's main accusers, claiming she and her third husband, James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell, had conspired to murder his son. Mar was amongst the Confederate lords who faced Mary in the field at Carberry Hill in June 1567, and Morton was a particularly ardent adversary of Mary's. He had been involved in the murders of Rizzio and Darnley, and it was his family's castle at Loch Leven where Mary had been imprisoned after her surrender at Carberry Hill. Murray, Lennox, Mar, and Morton. There had been as many regents in the mid-16th century in Scotland as there are Scottish Labour leaders in the 2010s, all desperately trying to quash support for Scotland's female leader. James had last seen his mother when he was 10 months old. He was 13 months old when she was locked up in Loch Leven Castle and he was made king and James would never see his mother again. She was imprisoned in England and James, he was being raised by the men who were fighting against Mary. And James's childhood tutor, George Buchanan, he would constantly tell James that his mother was a murderous Catholic whore. He told his fingers up in front of James' face and say, Smell your maw, James. Nasty, nasty character, so he was. George Buchanan had at one time been the chief scholar of Mary's court, but he became the chief pro- the chief protagonist in the Reformation and was Mary's most vehement enemy. Buchanan presented evidence at Mary's inquiry in 1571, a series of tracts entitled And Detection of the Doings of Mary, Queen of Scots. They were full of complete lies and bullshit. But then again, if you're going to be a religious leader, I suppose you have to be quite adept at making up nonsense, don't you? Buchanan was elected moderator of the General Assembly in 1567. The General Assembly is like the elected heads of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, its chief ministers and church elders. And it was Buchanan who was insistent that James be raised to be an exemplary Protestant leader. James was being raised to be simply the best, and he was subjected to a gruelling educational regime of Greek, Latin, French, history, cosmography, geography, composition, arithmetic, rhetoric, theology, and he did 20 minutes of PE with Joe Wicks every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday as well. And as impressive, as impressive as all of that was, I mean, it was nothing on woman, person, man, camera, TV. I mean, no one could compete with that, can they? Thankfully, James had another kinder, younger, more genteel tutor as well, Peter Young. And it was Peter Young who assembled the 600 books required for James's education and provided the background for his Zoom calls as well. The library assembled by Peter Young is the basis of the present-day Royal Library, which if you rummage around, you'll find a copy of Barely Legal magazine, which has been left there by Prince Andrew. 
Young became one of the king's favourite counsellors and he was the tutor for James's youngest son, Charles, the future Charles I. In May 1573, the regent Earl of Morton was able to break the Lang Siege of Edinburgh Castle and force the surrender of the castle's keeper, Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange. It marked the effective end of the Marian Wars as there was little support left for Mary after the Long Siege. And until James's formal education finished in March 1578, Morton ruled the kingdom with an authoritative hand. He was like Donald Trump, except obviously Trump ruled with an authoritative, you know, tiny wee hand. James accepted the government of Scotland at only 12 years old. Despite only being 12 years old, he was deemed old enough to tell everyone else what they should or shouldn't do, like a 17th century Greta Thunberg. A year after his majority began, a Stuart cousin, Esme Stuart, arrived in Scotland from France. Esme Stuart was a Frenchman in his mid-thirties. He was the nephew of James's grandfather, Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox. He was married to a Frenchwoman, had several children, and had come to Scotland on business related to his Lennox estates. James would fall head over heels in love with his elder French relative. Esme Stuart was a guy in his thirties who would end up in a relationship with the teenage king. He was like a, a reverse Joe Exotic. James first met Esme Stewart and his French entourage at the Great Hall at Stirling Castle on the 15th of September 1579 and immediately the young king was bowled over by this handsome Frenchman. Just days after the meeting, Esme Stewart and James rode into Edinburgh, their or James's first visit to the capital since his birth. And from that moment on, like an annoying father-son singing duo on Britain's Got Talent, the two were inseparable. Esme Stewart, he was promoted quickly. First he was made Commendator at Arbroath Abbey, then Earl of Lennox, then First Gentleman of the King's Bedchamber, Master of the Wardrobe, Governor of Dumbarton Castle, Privy Councillor and Lord Chamberlain, Lord Chamberlain of Scotland. His meteoric rise through the ranks was more spectacular than Ryland making it from X Factor additions to the one show. Now there are questions over whether there was a sexual element to James and Esme Stewart's relationship. There's no doubt that James was enamoured, he was bowled over, he would shower Esme Stewart with gifts and extravagant public displays of affection and Esme Stewart would take James to Pizza Express. James was completely in love, but whether the relationship was sexual or not is not known. It's completely conceivable that James was merely starved of affection. He had endured a, a cold and distant childhood growing up without a mother or father. And either way, as an older man, Esme Stewart, he was able to manipulate this need, the king's desperate need for affection for his own benefit. And with his newfound power, Esme Stewart was eager to take down the man who had ruled Scotland with an iron fist for seven years, the former regent, James Douglas, the Earl of Morton. James's minority had ended in 1578, meaning Prince Andrew was no longer a threat and that Morton was no longer regent. But Morton remained prime lord of the Privy Council and was the most powerful nobleman in Scotland. To bring him down, Esme Stewart used a henchman, a swashbuckling adventurer called Captain James Stewart of Bothwellmuir. Now, Captain James Stewart was the brother-in-law of John Knox. He was the brother of Knox's second wife, Margaret Stewart of Oakletree, whom Knox married in 1564 when she was 16 years old and he was 50, an age gap that even Rod Stewart would find inappropriate. I reckon that the brother of John Knox's 16-year-old wife is probably the only guy who hates Knox more than I do. 
Captain James Stewart, he interrupted a meeting of the Privy Council and he accused Morton of being one of the main players in the murder of Lord Henry Darnley. Morton was duly arrested and brought to trial. And at his trial, Morton admitted foreknowledge of the plot but denied any physical participation in it. How very 2021 of him. Morton was executed in June 1581 by way of the Maiden, a primitive form of guillotine that was introduced into Scotland by Morton himself while he was acting as regent. Morton was executed by the very means of execution that he himself had introduced to Scotland. It's like when an American buys a handgun to, inverted commas, protect their family, then ends up getting shot by their own toddler. The Maiden was a more efficient and more humane way of decapitation than the Executioner's Axe, which could be easily blundered, as was evident in the execution of Mary Queen of Scots in 1587. And it's important to be as efficient as possible when you're trying to kill people. Of course, if you're allegedly trying to prevent people from dying, then you can be as inefficient as you like, you know? You can feel free to spend £37 billion in that case. Although, to be fair, Serco is a much more efficient means of death than the Maiden. The leading men involved in the Morton coup were all rewarded. Esme Stewart was made Duke of Lennox, William Ruthven, Lord Ruthven, he was made Earl of Gowrie, and he was the... William Ruthven was the eldest son of Patrick Ruthven, who's the man who broke into Mary's bedchamber at Holyrood and murdered David Rizzio. Captain James Stewart, he was made Earl of Arran. This was despite the fact that the rightful heir of Arran, James Hamilton, the Duke of Chatelot's eldest son, was alive but confined to a madhouse. And the newly made Duke of Lennox's grip on power was precarious from the start because the Scottish nobility, they were always suspicious of outside influences. The predictable, jealous suspicion of foreigners was used against Lennox in the same way that it was used against Rizzio 15 years earlier. He's foreign, so he must be up to no good. An ideology popular amongst Scottish Protestant noblemen in the 16th century and people who vote for the Conservatives in 2021. The Scottish nobles accused Lennox of trying to impose Catholic leanings on the king. Some accused him of being a papal agent whose real purpose was to restore Mary Queen of Scots to the throne. The Pope just loved sending out his secret agents to Scotland, apparently. And they were always the last people you would ever expect, suspect of being papal agents in Scotland. You know, like Italian opera singers or French noblemen. Lennox and the King signed a document called the King's Confession in which it claimed Esme Stewart was incapable of sweating and couldn't be accused of having sex with a minor because he was at Pizza Express that night. Actually, hold on, um, I think I'm getting mixed up. This is the, yeah, I'm getting the King's Confession mixed up with the Prince's Confession here. I do apologise. Uh, the King's Confession, more commonly remembered as the Negative Confession, was signed by Esme Stewart and the King and it basically renounced the Church of Rome and all doctrines that did not conform to the reformed faith. It's what Rangers make new players sign when they arrive at the club. But Lennox's conversion to Protestantism and the King's Confession, it did little to placate the, noble, the nobles. They wanted him gone regardless of how Catholic he was. Like Celtic fans with Neil Lennon. In August 1582, the 16-year-old King James was hunting an Athol in Perthshire when he was invited by William Ruthven, the recently created Earl of Gowrie, to nearby Ruthven Castle with an offer of hospitality. Now, James, he was unaware that Gowrie had joined a group of ultra-Protestant lords who were plotting against him and Lennox, and so he duly accepted Gowrie's invitation. But when he arrived at Ruthven Castle, James was made a prisoner. The group of ultra-Protestant lords who detained them, they gave themselves the rather grandiose title of the Lord's Enterprises, and later union bears. Now locking up the king is clearly a bold move. I mean, look at the royal family these days. They don't even have the balls to lock up a prince who's clearly a nonce. 
The Lord Enterprises demanded that Lennox be removed from all of his positions within James's court and be immediate, and he immediately returned to France. Now, James, he didn't want to deport foreigners. He was also rumoured to be feeding school children as well. He would never have made it in the Conservative Party. But he was forced to sign a proclamation de- declaring him to be a free king, not under the influence of Lennox, and demanding that Esme Stewart leave the country immediately. It's like what the, the Tories made Boris Johnson do with Dominic Cummings. Lennox prevaricated for a few months and the boldly created new Earl of Arran, Captain James Stewart, he rode alone to Ruthven Castle to demand the King's release. He turned up with some fishing rods and chicken, but then he was promptly detained as well. In December 1582, Esme Stewart reluctantly returned to France when he realised there was no hope of freeing the King or giving fight to the Lord Enterprisers. Esme Stewart died the following year. His embalmed heart was sent to a heartbroken James who wrote a long lamenting poem for Esme Stewart and looked after the interests of his children for the rest of their lives. Now, it might sound it might sound pretty crazy, this, do you know what I mean? Like sending your embalmed heart to the monarch after you die, but it is what most Rangers fans have in their will. Still, the Hearts' return from France, it was nowhere near as controversial as Celtic's return from Dubai. James had now been kept prisoner at Ruthven for 10 months and he was determined to escape. In June 1583, he was able to convince his captors that he had accepted their authority and resigned himself to remaining in their power. I mean, I don't know how he managed that. Like, I can't imagine ever being snatched by ISIS and then convincing them that I was right into Sharia law and beheadings all of a sudden, you know? James, he was taken to the more comfortable surroundings of Falkland Palace and granted permission to attend a feast in St Andrews. But James had arranged for his supporters to gather in St Andrews and as soon as he was inside the walls of St Andrews Castle, he was finally free and safe from the Lord Enterprisers. The lords who had imprisoned the king at Ruthven Castle begged for her and were granted mercy by James for the time being at least. The political vacuum that was left by the Duke of Lennox's departure was filled by the Earl of Arran, Captain James Stewart, who was appointed Chancellor in 1584. The Lord's Enterprises attempted another coup in April 1584 by seizing Stirling Castle, which they hoped to use as a base for further assaults against the King. The Lord Enterprisers by this point were attempting more coups than a Tory cabinet member. And when James heard of the capture of Stirling Castle, he and Arran marched against the castle at the head of an army of 12,000 men, all there to witness Runrig's last gig. The castle surrendered and most of the Lord Enterprises escaped to England, but for the treacherous Earl of Gowrie, he could expect no mercy this time. He was executed for his treason against the king. Gowrie's execution was one insult against the king's sovereignty avenged, and now James turned his attention to another, the church. James was determined to stamp his authority on the Kirk after it had wholeheartedly endorsed the Ruthven Raid as an act of reformation. When it came to Scotland's extreme Presbyterians, James had an axe to grind, so he would introduce a Sunday ferry crossing to Stornoway because that would really piss them off. After the death of John Knox in 1572, the most prominent figure in the Scottish Reformation became Andrew Melville. Andrew Melville is considered the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism. And Presbyterianism, in its most extreme form, is a pretty miserable religion. The best way I can describe it is, imagine if the Taliban were Protestant. 
You're pretty much there. It's based on the... Presbyterianism is based on the Christian theology developed by the French reformer John Calvin in the 16th century in Geneva. John Knox had studied under John Calvin in Geneva, and Andrew Melville would study under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. Beza is the guy that taught him to play the maracas. Anyway, I feel really... Do you know what? I feel really sorry for the people of 16th century Geneva. Like, here, you've got this beautiful town by a gorgeous lake in the Alps, and then all of a sudden these Bible bashers start turning up. It must have been like a, a Trump rally coming into town and then never leaving. What an absolute nightmare. Calvinists in the 16th century believed in predestination, which basically says that all events are willed by God. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's already decided everything. And from the moment of your birth, he has already decided whether you will see, you will receive salvation or not. If you live in a God-fearing way, then you can hope that he'll look favourably on you. But you could do everything right. You could do everything the manager asks of you. And still, he won't start you at the weekend. Actually, sorry, do you know what? I'm getting 16th century Calvinism mixed up with Lee Griffiths' Celtic career. But basically, what happened was Knox and Melville went over to Geneva shopping for a form of Protestantism for Scotland and they came back with the most miserable one because they knew that's the one that Scottish people would best respond to. They knew us too well. Melville was a very different character to Knox. He wasn't a firebrand preacher. He was a scholar with a renowned intellectual reputation. Melville was the son of an Angus Laird. He studied at St Mary's College in St Andrews, and he went to Geneva where he, where he studied under Beza. He returned to Scotland in 1574 to become the principal of Glasgow University, and he was a constant thorn in the side of the Regent Earl of Morton, just as Knox had been to Marie de Guise, Mary, and the Regent Earl of Morton. Morton and Murray had been committed to Protestantism, but neither went far enough in the eyes of Knox and then Melville. Scotland had a, a semi-episcopal system in the 16th century whereby bishops nominated by the crown controlled the church. Melville advocated the separation of church and state. He wanted the creation of two separate kingdoms, one spiritual and one secular, and for the monarch to have no influence over matters of the spiritual realm. It's like the darts, right? So you've got two types of darts. You've got the, the glitzy, glamorous sky sports darts, and then you've got the shitey Poundland BBC darts, right? Now, Andrew Melville, he was basically saying, aye, you might be king, but you're only king of the crappy BBC darts. You know, you're Ted Hankey and Jesus is Michael Van Gerwen. Melville, he wanted complete autonomy from royal authority over the Kirk. Now, this separation of church and state would eventually happen, but trying to separate church and football team in Scotland, well, that would prove far more difficult. James obviously didn't like any religious system that didn't recognise his power as king. He believed in absolutism, in the divine right of kings. The king was appointed by God and as such was only answerable to God. He couldn't be held to account by the parliament or the general assembly. It's the same deal that Boris Johnson has with the British press. The king can do whatever the fuck he wants, basically. Andrew seems to think that this applies to princes as well. Now, as head of the church, James was responsible for appointing bishops in high positions which gave him royal authority and control over the church. In 1578, Andrew Melville headed a committee of Presbyterian ministers that created the Second Book of Discipline. Now, the Second Book of Discipline rejected royal supremacy and demanded the political autonomy of the General Assembly of the Kirk. 
When James escaped the Lord Enterprisers in 1583, he was determined to curb the powers of the Kirk, to reassert his control over the church, and to be a universal king answerable to no one, to make Scotland great again. Just as Mary had been summoned, or just as Mary had summoned Knox to Holyrood to answer accusations of inciting subjects to riot against the Queen, Melville too was summoned by James to appear before the Privy Council for allegedly preaching a sermon inciting subjects to riot. Melville never attended, and instead he took refuge in England. In May 1584, James called a parliament in Edinburgh where he passed a series of statutes known as the Black Acts. Now, the Black Acts, they were designed to curb radical Presbyterianism and reveal the magician's secrets. They confirmed the ecclesiastical structure of the church, the authority of the bishops, and the king's place at the head of the church. The Black Acts gave James the power to decide when and where meetings of the General Assembly should take place, and even if they should take place at all. The Black Acts also stopped the extreme Protestants who had so enjoyed bad-mouthing James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, from criticising James's parents. The books of James's domineering tutor, George Buchanan, were banned, most notably Fifty Shades of Grey, and the tract he wrote attacking Mary in 1571 and detection of the doings of Mary Queen of Scots. You were banned from criticising anything. It was like pretty Patel's police crime sentencing and courts bill. Kirk ministers subscribed to the new laws, and when Andrew Melville returned to Scotland in 1585, he was essentially rebuilding Presbyterianism from scratch. Presbyterians starting again from scratch. It was like Rangers in 2012. The Civil War was still fresh in the memory, and James, he was very weary of potential Catholic rebellions against him, and he knew he would require the support of Melville's extreme Protestant supporters in the event of a Catholic rebellion. And so he needed to keep them on side. So to appease the Presbyterians, he passed the Golden Axe in 1592. Now, the Golden Axe restored many of the privileges that the Black Axe had removed from the Kirk in 1584. Importantly, however, meetings of the General Assembly still needed the approval and consent of the King. And James, he was able to move the General Assembly around the kingdom, away from Edinburgh, which was becoming a hotbed of Melville support. Now, despite the restoration of a lot of the king's rights that were brought about by the Golden Axe, there was still antagonism between the king and Andrew Melville. In a heated exchange at Falkland Palace in October 1596, Melville famously said to the king, Sir, I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus the king, and his kingdom the Kirk, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom not a king, not a lord, nor a head, but a member. James would get the better of Melville in the long run. He installed bishops and gave them power to implement the king's will over the General Assembly. And when James ascended to the English throne, he suspended meetings of the General Assembly altogether. In 1606, he summoned Andrew Melville to London. Melville, he chastised the elaborate furnishings of the Chapel Royal like a dinner guest on Come Dine With Me. He criticised the Romanish robes of the Archbishop of Canterbury and for his trouble, he was sent to the Tower for three years. After three years in central London, Melville could no longer afford the rent on his one-bedroom bed-sit cell in the Tower of London and he was exiled to the continent where he lived out the rest of his days as a professor of theology at a seminary in France. He was sent to France to talk about God, which seems less like a punishment and more like a scripture union holiday. James took full control of his kingdom in 1585, at the same time Elizabeth I in England released the exiled Lord Enterprisers back into Scotland to launch another coup. 
The Lords had backing from England and support in Scotland, as many in Scotland resented the anti-Presbyterian Black Acts that James had passed the year before. On the 2nd of November 1585, they raised an army and laid siege on the King and his Chancellor, Captain James Stewart, Earl of Arran at Stirling Castle. James was forced to strip Arran of his title and of the Chancellorship. His loyal servant was banished from the court and spent the rest of his days wandering in Ireland, Ayrshire and the Highlands. He just wandered aimlessly after being Chancellor until he was needed by the Better Together campaign to spout some more shite about the Union. He was eventually murdered by the nephew of the Earl of Morton. It was a revenge killing for Captain Stewart's part in the trial and execution of the Earl of Morton in 1581, which is strange that he met his demise in Scotland and not while he was wandering in Ireland, you know, because, I mean, revenge killings, they're, they're very much an Irish thing, aren't they? The coup was an important lesson for James in dealing with the Queen of England. Throughout James's Scottish reign, his main concern was getting Elizabeth's endorsement as the heir to her crown in England, but acknowledging James's claim would legitimise Mary, who was still a prisoner in England. So James, he had to ingratiate himself with Elizabeth without concern for his mother. James, leader in Scotland, was willing to fuck up his reputation in Scotland to get his move to England. He was like Kieran Tierney. But it was clever politicking by Elizabeth. By refusing to name James as heir, she could continue to manipulate him. And it would explain why Mary's name was not mentioned when James signed a peace treaty with England at Berwick in July 1586. But James's unfeeling towards his mother, it was damaging his reputation in Scotland. It could be said with some certainty that previous Stuart monarchs in his situation would have raised an army and marched on England to try and free the Queen. If it was my mum, I'd have raised an army, marched down there and released her. Unless, of course, we're talking about the home that I'd put her in, you know. But, but it should be remembered that James had not seen his mother since her downfall in 1567 when he was barely a year old. He had been poisoned against his mother from birth and Mary's correspondence to him were being intercepted and stopped by the English. Mary was a dangerous liability that threatened James's claim to the English throne. She was all too easily implicated, imagined or not, in Catholic plots to assassinate Elizabeth and when she was caught up in the Babington plot in 1586 that led to her execution in 1587, it put James in a dilemma. If he wanted the English throne, he would have to dissociate himself from any suspicion of involvement in any plot to free his mother. But conventional honour, decency and public opinion in Scotland required James to make some effort to try and rescue his mother. In letters sent to Elizabeth before Mary's execution, James made it clear he would cut diplomatic relations with England if his mother were executed. In his letter, he brought up the circumstances of Elizabeth's own mother's death, Anne Boleyn's execution. It was a classic daughter not wanting to be anything like her ma. It would appear that James was unaware of just how intent the English were on having Mary executed. When the deed was done, Elizabeth sent James a letter claiming Mary's death was a terrible mistake. I'm not sure if Moonpig do condolences, we accidentally killed your ma cards, but nonetheless. James's response was not that of a grieving son, but of a master diplomat. He sent a neutral reply that made it clear to Elizabeth that for his forgiveness, he expected favourable treatment and to be acknowledged as the heir to the English throne. Regardless of his true feelings, James had little option but to give any other response as he didn't want to jeopardise his prospects of succeeding Elizabeth. Basically, James had to suck up to the English leader if he wanted power. It's like Douglas Ross, do you know what I mean? What's that, boss? You want to execute my ma? Well, listen, you know best, sir. Rule Britannia. 
The alliance with England that survived Mary's execution, it also survived the Spanish Armada of the following year, on which James was said to have been hedging his bets on the outcome. Now, the, the Spanish Armada was famously won thanks to Sir Francis Drake's burning boats, which I don't really understand why everyone makes such a big deal about it. Do you know what I mean? That just means that even Shetland could have beaten the Spaniards. Another pressing issue for the Scottish king was who he should marry. Elizabeth favoured a marriage to Arabella Stewart, who was James's cousin, and the French Calvinist princess of Nouvelle was also touted. Although marrying a French Calvinist princess wouldn't have been a good idea. Do you know I mean, she'd just be banging on about God all the time and you wouldn't be able to understand a word she said. I mean, you'd be as well just marrying a lassie from Stornoway, to be honest. In the end, James didn't take the advice of Elizabeth. He took the advice of Prince Andrew and he married a 14-year-old. The 14-year-old Princess Anne of Denmark. And as part of the dowry, Denmark would drop any future claims on the Orkney Islands, which had now been officially under Scottish control since 1472. And Denmark promised to support James militarily. On the 28th of August 1589, Princess Anne was married to James by proxy in Denmark. James, whatever his sexual preferences, had worked himself into something of a romantic frenzy over the marriage. When Anne set sail for Scotland in September 1589, severe storms forced the fleet to shelter in the Norwegian fjord. So desperate was James to see his bride, he decided to sail to Norway and fetch her for himself. The Duke of Lennox, Ludovic Stuart, who was the eldest son of Esme Stuart, and the Earl of Bothwell, Francis Stuart, James Hepburn's nephew, were left to run the kingdom while the king was away. James wrote a proclamation explaining his actions to the people of Scotland. He said he was breaking lockdown rules because he needed to travel to Norway for childcare and to check if he was blind or not. He told his subjects to behave themselves while he was gone, and he set sail for Norway on the 22nd of October 1589. When James arrived in Norway, he was in an ecstasy of love. Although already married by proxy, the couple had another wedding ceremony in person in Oslo and travelled to see the Danish royal family at the palace of Cronenberg in Denmark. The couple honeymooned for six months, James spending time in the court of his new brother-in-law, Kristen IV, where he feasted, drank, debated theology, and was given a silver goblet in commemoration of a three-hour debate he gave in Latin at the University of Copenhagen. Which, I mean, being subjected to a three-hour lecture in Latin sounds like a far worse punishment than anything Mary was subjected to. The couple arrived back in Leith on the 1st of May 1590 and the pubs on the shore, they charged £8 a pint to try and make Anne, who was from Denmark, feel at home. It's a tradition they continue to uphold to this day. On the 17th of May, Anne was coronated queen at Holyrood and the couple, they were in love and they enjoyed a happy marriage to begin with. Eventually, they would begin to drift apart, mostly because of James's sexuality, but nonetheless, Anne gave birth to seven children, of which only three survived childhood. Their much-beloved eldest son, Henry, was strapping, athletic, moulded and sculpted to be a young, invigorating king of the three kingdoms. He died unexpectedly at 18 years old, and everyone who had hoped for a young, popular king now had to make do with Charles. Hard to imagine, I know. James and Anne's youngest son, Charles, he was sicklier, frail and less qualified in kingsmanship than his older brother. Their daughter Elizabeth, the Winter Queen, married the German Prince Frederick Elector Palatine of the Rhine, which would be an amazing MC name. I mean, this is MC Frederick Elector Palatine of the Rhine, dropping those rams right on time every time. 
Elizabeth met something of a tragic end when the Protestants of Bohemia rebelled against their Catholic king. They offered Ferdinand their crown and it triggered the start of the Thirty Years' War, a series of religious conflicts in Central Europe. Frederick found himself threatened by the Holy Roman Emperor and was offered no support from his father-in-law James. He was defeated in battle outside of Prague and he and Elizabeth were forced into exile and poverty. Elizabeth would give birth to the dashing Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who led the English Royalist Cavalry in the English Civil War, and Princess Sophia, who was the mother of Britain's first Hanoverian king, George I. But one of the most curious consequences of James's marriage to Princess Anne was the obsession with witchcraft that James developed while he was in Denmark, and it would lead to a sharp and tragic rise in witch hunting in Scotland in the late 16th and 17th centuries. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you'll know that each week I try to match what I've been talking about on the podcast with a bottle of malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to raise enough money through my buying me a coffee and Patreon account so I can send someone who deserves it a bottle of that whiskey. It can be a an NHS worker, a frontline worker, it could just be a patient, parent, or just a thoroughly sound person who deserves a bottle of whiskey. Basically, all you do is, if you have listened to this podcast and you were like, do you know what, if I enjoyed that, if I met Daniel in real life, I'd buy him a pint, I'd buy him a cup of coffee. Well, you can do that. You go on to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Montebank Scotland and basically leave me the, the equivalent of a pint of beer and that goes towards buying deserving people bottles of whiskey if you have listened to a few episodes um and you're enjoying the podcast you might want to consider becoming a, a patron of the podcast you can do that by going on to patreon.com forward slash Montebank scotland and basically you just give me the equivalent of a pint of beer or a cup of coffee every month um it's really really does go such a long way it's an incredibly hard shift making this podcast but it uh, allows me to raise money to send people um, who deserve it, bottles of whiskey. So please, please consider uh, leaving me some money in those accounts. Um, you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey by sending me a DM on social media. Give me a follow at Montebank Scotland. Or you can leave me a comment on my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts. Or you can send me an email. And basically, I just choose someone at random. Uh, the malt whiskey I'm going to pair today's podcast with is the Blair Athol. Uh, James, he was out hunting in Athol territory when he was captured at Ruthven Castle, so that's why I'm choosing Blair Athol. It's a lovely uh, amber-coloured drink. It's really, really warm. Um, it would be perfect for something like a, a toddy. Actually, do you know what? You should never put a malt in a toddy. But anyway, that's the sort of feeling that you get from it, that kind of lovely warming feeling, quite kind of kind of full-bodied dram. It's delicious. Uh, and it's particularly good because it's got a picture of an otter on the label, which is quite cute as well. So there you go. Um, you can, Again, you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of that whiskey. Um, please give me uh, a follow on social media if you can, folks, at Montebank Scotland on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, if you get a chance, please, please like the podcast, rate the podcast, leave a review. That helps massively with getting up the charts and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have a YouTube channel as well, so you can find me on YouTube at Montebank History of Scotland. 
And uh, I don't think I've got anything else that I need to ask you to do. Give me a wee follow on social media and um, I do all the stuff that I asked you to do in regards to the whiskey. I do hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'll be back next time um, to talk to you about James the Sixth and his obsession with witchcraft. Until then, uh, look after yourselves and I shall see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.